that day. When evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Good morning to you all. I'm Svea Mary. I'm our pastor of spiritual formation here, which means I have the joyful privilege of getting to oversee our adult education program, namely our small group ministry. And I'll add my plug to what Caleb said. We'd love you to be in a group with us this fall. I also get to oversee our Bible study and class programs. But more importantly, my heart beats for people to know Jesus and to grow in their faith in him. I'm excited this morning for an opportunity to bring a message that isn't part of a specific series. We finished the preseason series last week, and Dear Church doesn't start till next week. When this opportunity came to preach today, and I could choose anything that I wanted to focus on, I pretty quickly landed on this passage. But maybe not for the reasons you would expect. This isn't going to be a long message on suffering, and this story isn't going to end in the point that it often does, that we don't have to fear any storm because we have Jesus in our boat, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying that that is wrong. I have taught this text before to that point. But I chose this passage because when I read it recently, there was a question that came to my mind that I couldn't quite shake. And that was, if the disciples were in this horrible storm and they had the Son of God in this boat with them, why in the world would the disciples just ignore Jesus, letting him sleep until they were convinced they were going to die? And then that led me to wonder another question, and that was this. What might make us ignore Jesus, consciously or subconsciously, like a sleeping presence in the back of our lives? My husband Steve and I love to travel, and most every flight we've ever been on has ended uneventfully, but there have been a couple of times when there's been a medical emergency on board, and Steve is a family doc with an ER background, is well-suited to be able to answer that call when someone says, is there a doctor on board? And I've been proud of him in those moments. But with that in mind, wouldn't you think these disciples in this emergency would have thought to ask, is there a miracle-working God on board? (laughs) Now, maybe you've heard this story taught before, and the teacher or the pastor gave the disciples a hard time because they were freaking out. But to be fair, I don't think they were ignoring Jesus out of disrespect. I just don't think that they fully understood who he was yet. They didn't get all that he could do. Now, sure, they regarded him highly as their rabbi, as this great teacher. They had seen him do miracles at this point. They'd largely, though, been miracles of healing. But they didn't turn to him right away. And I wonder why they did that. Is it because they were falling into the trap that so many of us do, thinking that they could handle this on their own? But what about us? 
We already have the whole account of Jesus' life. We know who he was. So why would we, if we truly believe that Jesus is a miracle-working son of God, would we not immediately turn to him when we're in different storms? Why would we freak out when things get hard? Well, only you can answer that for you. But let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like God is distant or wonder if he's truly there or if he's detached from your circumstances? Do you ever wanna say, Jesus, I feel like you are taking a nap and I'm getting tossed around and I'm not even sure if you care about it right now? If you can relate to that now or ever in the past, you're not alone. Listen to these transparent words of a Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep water. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Well, church has been great worshiping with you this morning. Before you leave this morning, you can stop by the... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> let's walk through this story of Jesus together and let's see the hope that we can find here. I'd love you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 or go there on your phone or if you grab the note sheet as you walked in, the text is also printed there for you too. While you're getting there, I'd like to give you some context so you can really picture what it would have been like to be in this story. The setting for this takes place on the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful sea. It's actually a large lake, really. It's 13 miles long, seven miles wide. Something that's really distinct about it is that there are cliffs all around it and the mountains on the east side just really skyrocket up. Mount Hermon on that side is 9,200 feet above sea level. And yet this lake is 700 feet below sea level. So if you are a weather nerd like I am, you immediately get fascinated by this because you know that anytime you've got super cooled air blowing quickly over the top of a mountain range, mixing with warm, dense, humid air over a below sea level lake, you've got a perfect recipe for very violent storms that can develop rapidly. I haven't yet been to Israel myself, but I am told that on the west side of this lake, there are some signs at some of the restaurants on the seaside that warn people to move your cars out of the lot if it starts to rain because the lots flood rapidly and you don't want to walk out of lunch and say goodbye to your car as it floats into the sea. Now this story happens at the end of a long day. Jesus has been teaching crowds and crowds of people. We find out earlier in the chapter that the crowds were so large and they were just clamoring to get to him that he went out into this boat and was sitting in the boat teaching them from the lakeshore, presumably to better be able to better communicate with them, but maybe also to avoid getting swarmed. Now where we pick up today's passage in Mark 4.35, it says, that day when evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. I love the detail that we can see here. We can picture it as evening's coming. He's been teaching all day. He's maybe a little tired, worn out, hopefully satisfied after a great day of ministry. The sun's going down. He's with his friends, and he tells them, let's go over to the other side. They're all heading out together leaving this crowd behind, they took him along just as he was. 
They didn't go into town first for a bite to eat. He didn't change into comfy clothes. They just left right there. Now, I don't mean to make more out of these details than are there, but these are the kind of details that remind us that this story was relayed by the people who were actually there. These are the details of the eyewitnesses of those who lived that. I love stories like that. As you're picturing this scene, maybe it helps to have an idea of what it might have looked like. This boat on the right side, or on, I guess on your left side, are the real remains of a boat that was excavated from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee and dated to the time when Jesus lived. And the boat on the right is a model of what that might have looked like. It's seated about 12 to 15 people, could be powered either by a large sail or rowed by four people with oars. A decent sized boat, but not where I would wanna be in the middle of a really bad storm which is what happened next when a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And we get more great details here. Jesus is choosing a rather odd time to demonstrate his chill, relaxed sleeping ability, but we also find out that he's in the stern, in the back of the boat. You can picture him back there. He's asleep on a cushion. He's relaxed. He's intentionally back there, ready for a good nap. The storm, a furious squall. In the Greek, the word used here isn't actually the word that is translated furious. It's great or huge. In Greek, it's literally mega. This is a mega storm that has, has overtaken them. We know that it's advanced to the point where the boat is filling with water. Can you imagine being the disciples sitting there And the water's coming up to their knees, maybe up to their waist. They're hearing the lightning flashing. They're feeling the wind. The rain is pelting their face. Can you put yourself with them in this storm? Now remember that these disciples, at least four of them, were professional fishermen on this lake. They'd been fishing this lake since they were little boys with their father. They'd obviously been in storms before, So the fact that they're in a storm right now is not what's significant about this story. What is, is that they think this is the end. They have already done everything they know to do to survive. They've gotten to the point that they've accepted their fate. They've given up. They are going to die. And it's only then that they wake Jesus up and say to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Isn't that fascinating? Why did they wait so long? Why did they cheat Jesus like he was an irrelevant sleeping figure in the back of their boat? I wonder if they fell into this trap of being self-sufficient, thinking that they could just handle this on their own. Maybe they just didn't even want to bother him. But do you ever do this? Do you ever pride yourself on being highly capable and self-sufficient, and you think, I can show God that I can handle this one myself? Or does pride lead you to wait until the crisis really hits before you turn to Jesus? Or is your spiritual life sometimes unsatisfying because you're not truly sure if God is there or if he really does care about you? If that's so, you're so welcome here. Thank you for getting real with us. Let's find hope together. 
When I was a little girl, I was given a necklace that belonged to my great-grandmother. I never got to meet her, but I had heard wonderful stories about her, and I was very, very honored to get to be the one who inherited this precious family heirloom, and I loved it. I wore it every single day. But one day, we had gone to a swimming pool, and I realized that night after we got home that I had forgotten to put it back on, and I must have left it in the locker when I was changing my clothes. I felt horrible. I was just sick to my stomach with the realization that I had lost this family necklace. I couldn't sleep that night. The next day, I was still feeling badly about it. It went on and on for days. I kept hoping my mom wouldn't notice that I wasn't wearing it anymore. And finally, after about two weeks, I confessed to her that I had lost this necklace. Bracing for her response, she surprised me when she said, oh, I totally forgot to tell you. I noticed that day at the pool that you didn't put it back on. I saw it in the locker. It's been in my purse. I just forgot to give it back to you. I was so relieved, and yet at the same time, I began immediately kicking myself, like, if I had just said something that first night, I could have saved myself two weeks of stress. And I wonder if we do the same thing with God. When we are feeling stress in our relationship with God, or stress over our circumstances, and we don't just immediately go to him and tell him about that, are we just sitting there in stress and desperation that we don't need to? But maybe you haven't turned to God because it seems like God's been asleep in your storm, so to speak. When the waves are soaking you and God seems distant, do you wanna yell out, God, it feels like you are leaving me alone right now in the midst of this. It's like you don't care because if you loved me, you wouldn't be letting me face this storm. And that's what the disciples seem to be screaming at Jesus in this moment when they're saying, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Well, of course he does. But the frank truth is that sometimes God may let that storm happen because he has purposes for them. Now consider this. If God is powerful, sovereign, and good enough to be worthy of blaming for the storm that we find ourselves in, he is also has to be powerful, sovereign, and good enough to have reasons for why it's happening even if we can't yet understand those reasons. You can't have the first half of this statement make any sense without the second half. When the disciples were lashing out at Jesus and accusing him of not caring, notice his response. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Isn't Jesus really saying in this moment, if you really believed in me and believed that I love you, you could have been calm in this storm too? Their accusation is misguided. It wasn't right for them to be saying, Jesus, if you love me, you wouldn't be letting the storms come into my life. No, the truth for us is so much better than this because Jesus is saying, if you love me, you don't have any reason to fear the storm. The storm answers to me and I'm not afraid. I'm not panicking. You don't have any reason to either. But let me ask you this. Why was Jesus able to sleep during that storm? Well, it wasn't bothering him. He wasn't scared. He wasn't threatened by it. Let's go back and see how he deals with the storm. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He kind of reminds me here of when I was a young mom with a little bit 
overactive toddlers. And moms know this. We can just see that and say, sit down and be quiet. And by comparing Jesus to a parent of a hyperactive preschooler, I don't mean any disrespect. In fact, quite the opposite. I think it's lovely. I think it's lovely that we can envision Jesus as someone who is in control, who is looking at the scene, who knows what to do, who's not letting it escalate to a point beyond what he is willing to tolerate. There's a sweet scene in a movie that, that I enjoyed from about 25 years ago, The Horse Whisperer where Robert Redford is teaching a very young teenage Scarlett Johansson how to drive a pickup truck. They're on this big open field in a ranch in Montana. This poor girl is a little afraid, not quite sure that she can do this, but he's completely relaxed about it, knows that she'll be fine. They're just following this long cattle path. And about the time that he thinks she's got the hang of it, he says, okay, I'm just gonna take a little nap here. And he, he folds his arms and he kind of reclines back and closes his eyes and she's nervous about this, but he's doing it on purpose just to convey to her that it's okay, you've got this, I'm here with you. And every once in a while he kind of peeks out to make sure that everything is still good. Have you ever wondered if Jesus was doing this too? Was Jesus intentionally taking that nap? I mean, I don't think Jesus did anything without purpose. I mean, yeah, he was fully human. He may have been tired at the end of a long day, but I think it would be really weird if we suggested that he was so tired he couldn't wake up in the middle of a hurricane. I don't know anyone who sleeps that hard. So what was it that he was trying to convey with that nap? There's a verse that I really like in the Psalms that would be easy to take out of context. It says, for God grants sleep to those he loves. <laughs> All of my insomniacs here have just giggled at this. Of course, if you struggle with sleep, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It means that for all of us who are in Christ, we don't have any reason to lay awake in fear or distress because our God, our good, powerful, and sovereign God is watching over us. Jesus could sleep in the middle of that howling wind and crashing wave storm because as God, that storm couldn't do anything to him. And this is far more significant theologically than we may understand at first glance. You see, the ancient Near East cultures dreaded the dangers of the sea. They actually regarded the sea as an evil place. The sea was the kind of place where your loved ones may go out and be swept away in the unmanageable power of the waves and be taken from you forever. They regarded the sea as a dangerous, violent, and grief-filled place. We see this motif all throughout scripture, beginning even on the very first page of the Bible. In the very beginning, it's in the primordial waters of chaos that God creates order. There's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 93, that demonstrates the power of God over the evils of the sea. Look at this. It says, the Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the word is established, firm and secure. But then contrast this with the evils of the sea. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. But then it resolves this way. Mightier than the thunder of the great waves, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord is high on mighty. This motif of the sea continues throughout scripture and Daniel in this prophetic vision of four beasts. These are evil creatures who rise up out of the sea. 
And then at the very end of the Bible, in Revelation, in John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he says that there will no longer be any sea. Now, for those of us who love to be out on the water, this doesn't mean that there won't be oceans or lakes or other bodies of water that we enjoy. We know there's a great river in the new heavens, but that there will no longer be a sea, a place of evil where our loved ones are taken from us. Throwing a bone to all of my fellow Scandahoovians out there, do you know the story about the 11th century Danish King Canute? This king apparently had some subjects that were a little overly fond and impressed by him, and they actually thought he was a god. And in order to refute the silly notion, he walked up to the sea and he told it to stop, and of course nothing happened. And that was how he communicated to them, only God can stop the sea, and I can't do that. I'm not God. So with that in mind about the power of God and the evil of the sea, now put yourself back in that boat in the waterlogged shoes of these scared disciples. They fear the evil of the sea, and their nightmare is now the reality that they are living. But suddenly, when they see Jesus put the sea in its place as easily as a parent telling a kid to sit down and be quiet, they see everything in a whole new light. Suddenly the roaring winds and the waves are gone and along with their misconceptions about who Jesus was. In the text, just as it described this storm as a mega storm, when it says it's completely calm, the word there actually is mega again. Now they're in a mega calm. Now who's the most relevant person on board in an emergency? They've got the one who turns mega storms into mega calm. And there's a great comedic element at this point in the story. Before this happens, the disciples are sure they're going to die. Now, they're terrified. (laughs) They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And when Mark ends the story right here, very abruptly, I think he did so, so that everyone who hears the story or reads this text is gobsmacked by this question right along with them. Who is this indeed? But if you can appreciate how the disciples in the boat in that moment were terrified, can I show you something else that just really blew my mind as I was studying this? Look back at verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. Did you notice that before? Not that there were other boats out there on the lake. There were other boats with Jesus. Can you imagine being a follower of Jesus in one of those boats? They too were in this mega storm and then presumably suddenly in this mega calm and they didn't have Jesus right next to them to understand what had happened but because Jesus is sovereign over that experience, His power was there for them as well. And that's really good news for all of us because as followers of Jesus, sometimes we can calm and encourage ourselves with this beautiful idea that we have Jesus in our boat so we don't need to fear the storm. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But have you had those nights when you just can't see him and it doesn't feel 
like he's in the boat with you? Sometimes as followers of Jesus, we can be sure that we are headed in the direction that he has told us to go. We are trying our best to follow along with him. We are trying to aim for that same direction, that same destination that he said that we should be headed towards. And pow, megastorm. And in those nights, hard as we may try to see and feel and and sense his presence with us, we might have a night like those poor souls in the other boat where it is dark and it is scary and we just feel like we're being tossed around. But the good news is that Jesus' power is still sufficient for us in those storms. Jesus' power is not limited by our faith or limited by our feelings. His power is in who he is. And the storms will do what he wills them to do, whether we can see him doing it or not. And for me, I think that's even more encouraging than telling myself to be calm because I have Jesus in my boat. Because no matter what, even if I can't feel him right there, I can trust him knowing that he is still in control, he is still sovereign over that storm. So I ask you to consider with those who experienced this event, who is this Jesus? the one that the wind and the waves obey? How does understanding Jesus for all that he is and all that he can do impact you? What would it mean today to face that problem that just feels insurmountable, knowing that you have him to walk through it with you? What would it mean to work on your marriage or another relationship that matters to you, knowing that you have his wisdom to guide you in your steps? How much better would you sleep tonight if you could rest knowing that he sees the crisis that you're in and he's got you? If you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to do that right now. There's nothing better that you could do in this moment Simply express to him that you don't want to keep trying to weather these storms of life on your own, that you recognize you can't. You recognize your brokenness along with all of us and that we need Jesus to free us from our sin and that he did that when he died on the cross to redeem us from our sins. And he lives, the resurrection proves that he lives forever to be our savior. Or if you do know Jesus as your Lord and savior, but you've been letting him sleep in the background of your life, so to speak, hear him today inviting you back into a deeper, more connected relationship with him. Hear him inviting you to be with him, to stop trying so hard to control the storms on your own and to rest and to let him do it for you. How can you do this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you five ways, not because that's all there is, but because it's what fits on my slide. Spend time with Jesus. Be intentional about wanting just to connect with him. You can do that as you read about him. Study him in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look to see what they have to say about him. Observe how he handled situations. Look for his character. Look for his kindness. Look for his power. Notice when he's at work in your life. Notice when you sense that I feel like Jesus is doing something right here and express your gratitude for that when you feel him doing something in your life. Be intentional about trying to become more like him. As you look to him, as you study him, and you think, I want to be like him. I want to respond to this the way that he would. 
and pray. Talk to him about everything throughout your day. Talk to him about the big stuff. Talk to him about the little stuff. Just talk to him throughout your day and grow that relationship. What I have seen is that the more that we make it our practice to be with Jesus and to seek to be more like him, it becomes unthinkable to try to weather a storm or even the calm without him. Our mission as a church is to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, of this Jesus that the wind and the waves obey. And I love hearing the stories of some of you who have told me how Jesus has transformed your life. And when we know Jesus for all that he is and all that he can do, we may wanna just sit in that boat in the mega calm with him forever. And most messages on this passage end there with that idea. And it's a beautiful thing. But before we close, I'd like to show you one more really powerful thing. In the next chapter, right after this story, Mark tells us that when Jesus and his disciples finally did reach it to the other side of the lake and they got out of that boat, they were met by a man who was horribly afflicted with demonic spirits. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. I'd love you to read that on your own later, but I want to show you how it ends. So Jesus had freed this man from the torment that he was experiencing and he gave him his life back again. The man was over the moon grateful, but the demons that left him went into a herd of pigs and it destroyed those pigs. And the pig tenders were noticeably upset by this, went into town, told the townspeople, they all got riled up against Jesus and they pleaded with Jesus to leave their town. But then we see this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, that same boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Isn't that understandable? I would do that. I would be begging Jesus, let me just go with you. you. You made me safe again. I just, I need to be right there with you. He'd also been in a storm, a very different kind of storm, but he'd encountered the life-changing power of Jesus. But Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Friends, I don't know what the wind and the waves are like in your part of the sea today, but I do know that Jesus is more than able, more than capable of seeing you through that storm. He is able to do immeasurably more than all that we think or ask or imagine. Even though you may be in turmoil, he's not. He's peaceful, he's calm, he has what you need. He's waiting with open arms for you to turn to him. And on the other side of that storm, you get to leave the boat as someone whose life has been transformed by his incredible power and amaze other people because of what he has done for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are amazing. How incredible that you have the power to tell the storms to stop. How incredible, though, too, that you love us and that you are with us in our storms. Keep calling us back to you, Jesus. Keep inviting us to grow in our love and our devotion to you. Meet us in those moments. Help us to trust you when it's hard to see you. 
Help us to rejoice when we know you're right there. We love you, Lord. Amen.